It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. Lots to talk about. Uh, a DDoS attack against Mastodon. Uh, Steve's take on blocking TikTok. Does it accomplish anything? GitHub's new secret scanning service, something we should all probably be running. The latest WordPress plugin that's threatening more than a million sites. Russia finding Wikipedia. And Steve digs deep on the case of the chicken bone points or something. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 913. Recorded Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. A foul incident. Security Now is brought to you by Thinkst Canary. Detect attackers on your network while avoiding irritating false alarms. Get the alerts that matter for 10% off and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Go to canary.tools slash twit and enter the code twit in the How Did You Hear About Us box. And by Drata. Too often security professionals undergo the tedious, arduous task of manually collecting evidence with Drata. Say goodbye to the days of manual evidence collection and hello to automation. All done at Drata speed. Visit Drata.com slash twit to get a demo and 10% off implementation. And by Collide. Collide is a device trust solution that ensures that if a device isn't secure, it can't access your apps. It's zero trust for Okta. Visit Collide.com slash security now and book a demo today. It's time for security now. You've been waiting all week, so why? To hear from this guy right here, Steve Gibson, our securitarian. Uh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> securitarian. <laughs> our what? secretary of security. Securitarian. Right, <laughs> uh, every week we get together, Steve explains why the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, I suspect, Steve, I may be wrong, but I suspect you will be answering some pretty important questions this week. This week's answers are many, as it turns out. How has Fostodon survived a sustained DDoS attack, or has it? What luck have Europol and the FBI had with taking down DDoS for hire services, and have they returned? What's the point of blocking TikTok, and is it even possible? What happens when government-backed surveillance goes rogue? And exactly what is Strategic Objective 3.3? What, if anything, does it portend for future software? Should you enable GitHub's new secret scanning service and get yourself scanned? What exactly did CIS's secretive red team accomplish and against whom? Which messenger apps have been banned by Russia? Who's missing from that list and why? What exactly is old that's new again? What happens when everyone uses the same cryptographic library for their TPM code? What's the latest WordPress plugin to threaten more than one million sites? And why has Russia fined Wikipedia? And once we've put that collection of need-to-know questions to rest, we're going to examine the surprising revelations that surface as we unearth the foulest of security, of recent security incidents. 
Thus, today's podcast. When you say foul, foul F- incident. O-W-L. Yes, indeed. <laughs> People who are not watching will not maybe immediately get the yes, pun indeed. that you have a made. A foul incident. <laughs> it's a foul. I can't wait to find out what that's all about. And, of course, we do have another great picture of the week, which yes. makes you question humanity <laughs> once again. I saw it and I went, wait, uh, what? <laughs> uh, Security Now is brought to you by Thinkst Canary. Hey, I want to show you something, Steve. This is so cool. You know all about it. Very, the very one of the very first shows That's we did. A I think it was Thinkst Canary. You know immediately, don't you? That's it's a, what it is. But more importantly, it's a honeypot. One of our very first shows was all about honeypots, the honey monkeys episode. And that's exactly what the Thinkst Canary is, but a, a, a heck of a lot easier than the honeypots uh, we were talking about at the time. In fact, I remember we talked to Bill Cheswick when we did that event in uh, Boston a couple of years ago. And uh, Bill said, I think I wrote the first software honeypot because he was trying to track down a hacker. Boy, is this easier. What's a honeypot? A honeypot is something that is irresistible to bad guys. Something that they just got to investigate. Uh, it could be a document that says, you know, employee payroll information. It could be an entire server offering file shares. Uh, it could be an FTP site. There's lots of things a honeypot can can uh, imitate. But that's the beauty of this thing's canary. It can do it all. The canary is a little appliance that you put on your network. Actually, you probably want to have multiple canaries on your network. They don't look vulnerable. They look valuable. Uh, you could set them up uh, in any variety of ways very easily. You get a console, and you just choose. And they do it right, too. They don't just make it look like that thing. They give it a MAC address that's appropriate, you know, the MAC address it would have if it were really from that company. It can be a Windows file server. It could be a, a router. It could be a Linux web server. It could be lit up like a Christmas tree with services or just a few selected services. This one turns out, and I've mentioned this before, this is a Synology NAS. And when you hit it, when you see it, it 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 has a DSM login, like just like the real deal, has a MAC address, just like the real deal. Here's the difference. When an attacker attempts to log in, I get an alert. And I know somebody's inside my network. This is why we've always said security is a layered approach. You know, we got zero trust networks. We've got perimeter defenses. We've got inbox defenses. But ultimately, at some point, there's always a chance somebody's going to get in. And then what? That's why you need the canary, because you need to know if somebody's wandering around your network. On average, it's 91 days before a company finds out that somebody's in the network. This just takes three minutes to set up. No ongoing overhead, practically zero false positives. You'll detect attackers the minute they start exploring, long before they can dig in. It's no wonder things to canary hardware like this, VM and cloud-based canaries, yeah, they got those too, are deployed and loved on all seven continents. Prowling attackers look for juicy targets, right, as they browse around your network. They browse Active Directory, for instance, for file servers, you could put this on Active Directory. They explore file shares looking for documents. Uh, they try default passwords against network devices. In fact, that's one of the great things. The alert will say what the login they attempted with with my fake Synology here. And that tells me a lot about what they already know. You know, what, what uh, email address they use, what password they use. It tells me a lot. 
The canary can also impersonate individual files. You can create canary tokens with your canary, scatter them around a network, PDFs, XLS, stock files, except they're not. They look like they are, but they're really uh, tripwires spread around your network to alert you when a bad guy wanders around. You can order, configure, and deploy network uh, canaries throughout your network. Uh, as I said, they now have cloud-based birds and VMs as well. Uh, then you wait. Your things to canary quietly. It's a quiet little servant running in the background, just like a real canary in a coal mine, right? Just sitting there. But this one doesn't sing. It just sits there quietly, little green light, waiting for intruders. It's constantly checking up, providing an up-to-the-minute report if you want on their status because you'll get the canary console. Even customers with hundreds of canaries receive just a handful of events per year. No false positives. But what's really amazing is when you've got these canaries, when you get, when you, and we, this happened to us, when you get the alert, it's like, whoa, quick, let's track that down. You can do it, uh, get alerts via email, via text, via Slack notification. They support webhooks, syslog, you bet, or your canary console, but, or all of the above. Actually, all of the above is fun because then you get, you know, your phone goes like crazy and you go, oh my God. In this case, uh, I think it was, uh, who was it? Was it uh, Megan? I think Megan had a Western Digital Passport or some some uh, NAS device she plugged into the network, and it was running software that went out and pinged every IP address on the network. Said, hello, or who are you? Tell me about yourself. Well, we got I got an alert from this canary right here, and because it was coming from 10Dot, I knew it was inside the network. We were able to quickly track it down, disconnect the device, never to connect it again. That was great. It was a good kind of trial run because I don't think it was malicious. But boy, it really let us know this thing works. Uh, just ask a principal security engineer of a uh, Fortune 50 company. We got the quote. Canary, he says, has helped us detect and mitigate several incidents, several that could have turned into catastrophes. An alert filed by their cloned site token allowed us to identify and force a takedown of several doppelganger domains that were purchased by bad actors for the purpose of launching phishing attacks against our employers and our employees and customers. He went on. And this this is probably on the uh, on the canary.tools slash love page, which has all of these great testimonials. He says, I cannot recommend this product enough. You don't know what you don't know, but Canary helps you know what you need to know when it matters. You may have heard about the uh, Circle CI compromise recently. How did users find out? Most users found out about the incident from their Thinkst Canaries. You can you could look it up. Canaries work. They prove it continually. It's real peace of mind, and you need one. Visit canary.tools/twit. Five Canaries, seventy five hundred bucks a year. You want more, maybe? Big banks certainly would have hundreds. Small operation may be fewer. But just as an example, five canaries, 7500 bucks a year. That gives you your own hosted console. So you can mess with the settings, change it around. It's kind of fun to play with it. You get updates, support, and maintenance. And if you use the code TWIT, by the way, in the How Did You Hear About Us box, just type TWIT, you're going to get 10% off your canary price for life on all of them. 10% off for life. And we know you love your things, canary, but... And I always say this, they have a very generous two-month full refund money-back guarantee. But I have to say, I, I talked to them the other day. They said in all the years they've offered this money-back guarantee, they have not done one 
refund. Nobody gets a canary and says, oh, yeah, I don't like it. Everybody wants it. Everybody needs it. You should get some. Canary.tools slash twit. Enter the code twit in the how did you hear about us box. That's important for Steve and me because then they know you saw it here. Uh, so please do that. Canary.tools slash twit. We thank them so much for their support of the program. Canary.tools slash twit. Steve, I think, I bet, I know you've got a picture of the week. <laughs> so, yes, as I said, this one will make people question humanity once again. <laughs> I, I, I gave this one the caption, why real world testing is important. Um, and this picture was provided courtesy of Simon Zarafa, uh, a friend of the show. It's a photo of a notice that was posted It's in some organization somewhere on the wall. And it, it explains what you should do. It says, please, when using the stairs, stay to the right when going up. Stay to the left when going down. This oh, dear. This will keep people from running into each other. No, no. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Uh, uh, so guarantee no. that people. <laughs> yeah. And, and and you also kind of have to wonder what, like, are people having their eyes closed when they're using the stairs? You shouldn't need this notice, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, you ought to see people, like, <laughs> approaching you. Uh, on the same side, and and you know, one of the two of you decides to s switch sides. But of course, you know, this was just wonderfully written from like the perspective of someone standing at the bottom looking up the stairs, yeah. not from the perspective of the person no. actually doing the walking. Would have been sufficient just to say, "Stay to the right." Please but, stay to the right. Yeah, yeah li like when you're driving on a street. Yeah, like you know, yeah. similar to that. That's what everybody does anyway. But no, we're going to be more. As I said, why real-world testing is important, you should test this signage after you've posted it and see what happens, and then consider changing it. Okay, so last Thursday, Chris Miller posted on Fostodon, Hi all, we're still under a major DDoS attack, and that's why mobile and desktop clients are not currently working. We've had to put the site behind Cloudflare temporarily, until the attack stops. We're looking at other long-term solutions, but we need to get through the current moment first. For now, use the web interface. Thanks for your patience. And as of yesterday, when I last looked, that attack was still ongoing. Fostodon, as its name suggests, you know, F-O-S-S-T-O-D-O-N, is the largest Mastodon instance inhabited by open-source software denizens, and sadly, this most recent attack marks only the latest in a growing string of DDoS attacks that have hit and easily brought down unprotected Mastodon server instances over the past few months. And Leo, you were saying now that, that uh, Mastodon.social is yeah, in trouble. Gargron, he, who created Mastodons, runs Mastodon.social. His was down. He, he tooted uh, a couple of days ago. And last week... Uh, during this show, in fact, I think it was, I was getting a lot of messages from people saying, is your site, is twit.social down? We run a Mastodon instance. And I checked, you know, we have a thing called Sidekick running that talks about traffic. And uh, in particular, how many queues are open and how many have been processed, how many haven't and how many have failed. And it was through the, the number of queues is through the roof, which is sometimes a sign of, uh, you know, too many people using the site. But nothing had happened for that to make that the case. 
So while I don't know, I'm going to guess that was also a DDoS attempt. Their people were flooding us with the posts. With, or or with, with connection attempts. And so yeah, that, or that connection would have overflowed the, right. the inbound queue. Yeah, Psychic yeah. would have died. Yeah. So anyway, what's happened is, and here's a, like some anecdotal examples we just had, the pace of these attacks has increased significantly after Mastodon gained a huge amount of attention thanks to the mass exodus from Twitter following Elon's takeover and his subsequent actions, which you know struck many as not being in the best interests of neither the larger Twitter community nor their own individual uh, best interests. So fearing the approaching end of Twitter, many jumped over to the Mastodon's decentralized model, which inherently prevents a repeat of essentially, you know, what Elon is doing at Twitter. Um, it also means fact, that DDoS can't bring the whole thing down, right? Because, well, it, it can't bring, you know, individual being, instances down. Exactly. Be, being, being federated. You, there's other places you could go there. There's a guy, uh, fed tips, uh, F E D I T I P S at mastodon.social. Yeah, that's good. As yeah, in, yeah. As in federated tips. And he posted, or that person posted the mastodon.social server is currently under a heavy DDoS attack and may not work properly. The, 12,164 other servers on the network are unaffected. This is part of the reason why federated networks are a good idea. If one server goes down, the others work fine. The more spread out we are on small and medium-sized servers, the harder it is for anyone to take down the network because there's no obvious target. He says there are also many other reasons why federation is good, and then he provided a, a, a link to Fetty.tips slash why is the Fediverse uh, hyphenated. So, you know, there's there's not much more to say here other than to note that Fetitips is certainly correct. On the one hand, the nearly week-long DDoS attack against Fostadon has rendered its mobile and desktop clients inoperable. But thanks to their web front end moving behind Cloudflare's front end protection, at least their web interface is operable and they're remaining on the air. As I noted recently when we were talking about the most recent DDoS connection rate attack record being broken, no standalone server on the Internet can withstand today's DDoS attacks, not even for an instant. Uh, is that because they're amplified? Is, is that... Is that why they're yes. so strong? Yes. Today's modern IoT botnet-based attacks are large enough to swamp even medium-sized bandwidth providers. That, that is to say, you know, it might even be that the traffic doesn't actually reach your server because it brings down the routers upstream of your server because these attacks are just so big. So it's not that your server is even down. It's that the, the traffic from outside on the Internet can't, ev can't even reach it because the attack just swamps the, the, the aggregating routers before they have a chance to even get to your server. So the only recourse, I mean only, if you have to be on the net, is to move behind the protective skirts of one of today's major DDoS protection services. The problem is... Such service is not free unless the service wishes to provide such service charitably. And that's one thing that sort of annoyed me. Elsewhere um, on Reddit, the Fostadon admin was grousing a little bit about the need to be rescued by a commercial service such as Cloudflare. 
You know, in my opinion, they should consider themselves incredibly fortunate that such a facility like Cloudflare exists. Otherwise, they would be off the net for as long as the DDoSing Cretans wanted to keep them off the net. And, you know, I have had experience with that in, in my past. And, and it is, in fact, uh, we got an interesting graph coming up next, which gives us a sense for the scale of the problem, not not only in attack size, which, as we've said, is now just, I mean, it's incredible amounts of attack where it's, it's you know, to call it overkill is, uh, is an understatement because it, it would just, the attacks are so large that they would, they just melt the wires essentially <laughs> between uh, the, 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 the server being attacked and the outside world. Okay. So on the subject of DDoS attacks, the network security provider NetScout has noted that the efforts by Europol and the FBI to take down more than 50 DDoS for hire services in the middle of last December has indeed led to a measurable decline in DDoS attacks. And I've got a chart in the show notes that demonstrates that visually. Those declines have been um, recorded at broadband providers across both the U.S. and the EU. And moreover, NetScout said that DDoS traffic has remained at lower levels for the month after those takedown efforts. This suggests that no new players have immediately appeared on the underground DDoS market to fill the void after last year's takedowns. On the other hand, you know, four or five weeks isn't much time to wait for a new service to get itself up and going. So to illustrate their data, NetScout provided this nice chart that we've got on the screen right now uh, so that we were able to see for ourselves. That chart leaves little doubt that the takedown effort had its intended effect. Where the takedown occurred, you could see a dramatic decrease in something. So wondering exactly what that something is, you then look at the horizontal scale to learn that the charge horizontal axis is in attacks per day. So you learn that while, yes, the number of attacks per day did indeed fall from their peak of around 3,500 DDoS attacks per day globally. Um, and and that peak was reached twice, and a number of, of shorter peaks, like more than 3,000, were reached another four times. Still, a few weeks ago, uh, a month after this takedown, uh, actually it was the 22nd of January, there were 1,000 attacks in that day. And, of course, it only takes one attack to ruin a particular website's day. So, you know, it's definitely good that law enforcement is on this and is taking down these DDoS for hire services since they commoditize DDoS attacks. They allow anybody to send a little Bitcoin somewhere and say, I want this site removed for X length of time. I think, you know, you, you, you pay by the minute how long you want the, the site to be gone. So that's not the kind of commodity that you want around. And I'm delighted that the FBI and Europol are on that. But, you know, we're, we're still seeing individual attacks breaking records. So it's clear that there's still plenty of firepower left to which Fostadon and Mastodon.social can both attest. Um, 
You know, Foster Dom moved to self behind Cloudflare, got their website back up. Once the attack abates, they will presumably move back. And depending upon the size of the grudge or whatever it is, I mean, like, you know, who knows why Fostodon is being attacked? The, the part of the problem is these attacks are so trivial to execute now that they don't really have to mean anything. It's just, you know, if you've got a, an idle botnet that can do DDoS attacks, well, you know, spin the wheel and pick your target. It's it's I mean, it's sad. And there is it, it's the, the probably the biggest weakness, the biggest fundamental weakness that we have in the the way the internet works with its autonomous routing is that you know the the brilliance of it is that you can drop a packet on the network anywhere in the world and the routers will forward that packet to its destination IP and that's also the bad news because if you've got a whole bunch of people all dropping packets all aimed at a given at the same IP this the world the global internet will concentrate all of those packets into that single location and create a single point of failure and you know that site is no longer able to respond to good packets because the malicious ones have just flooded it so that hasn't been fixed and i don't see any fix for that uh it will it would take you know some as we've talked about this before right um some clients that are generating ddos attacks are able to to spoof their source ip they're able to just make up whatever ip they want as the packets are leaving well that traffic could be blocked at the the first time it comes to a network border because that network border knows very well what networks are inside of it. So You're saying an ISP specifically. Correct. I mean, we've correct. always we've said this for years that ISPs I, have got to be doing this. They've got to yep. block outbound it's, traffic that's yep. not originating from IP addresses inside their uh, range. Exactly. It's called egress filtering and it's all the I, technology is I, there. It's just it's I can't believe they're not doing it still. I know. Um, that's yeah. that's kind of stunning. I thought they were. <laughs> yeah. Maybe well, well, you know, maybe Comcast is maybe the big ones are, but it, all it takes is one little Ukrainian true. ISP or and, something, right? And the argument has been, well, then bots would then start making up IPs within the network, so you didn't know oh, which one where in the network it was. Um, uh, and 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 you know the bots are also disposable, right? They're they're all compromised routers, you know, th that exist in in back closets and corners. So in fact, it's not like they're they're people who need to avoid or evade law enforcement. They're just you know IoT devices that have long been forgotten, that that have not been patched, that have been taken over remotely, and now they're serving somebody else's ends. So. We got a sort of a mess, and it's it's not being resolved quickly. So, okay, last Thursday, the headline in Gizmodo read, we found 28,000 apps sending their data to TikTok. Banning the app won't help. Um, I'm just going to share the beginning of Gizmodo's very long article since it contains most of the useful information. Gizmodo writes, President Joe Biden gave federal agencies 30 days to remove TikTok from government devices earlier this week. You know, and that means la that, that was last week. 
Until now, most politicians, Gizmodo is saying, intent on punishing TikTok have focused solely on banning the app itself. But according to a memo reviewed by Reuters, federal agencies must also, quote, prohibit prohibit Internet traffic from reaching the company, unquote. That, and Gizmodo says that's a lot more complicated than it sounds. And I'll interject here, uh, a lot less complicated than Gizmodo thinks, but we'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, so they said Gizmodo has learned that tens of thousands of apps, many which may already be installed on federal employees' work phones, use code that sends data to TikTok. Some 28,251 apps, and it's unclear which platforms those are on. There's no mention of that here. They said use TikTok's software development kits, SDKs, which they explain are tools which integrate apps with TikTok systems and send TikTok user data for functions like ads within TikTok, logging in and sharing videos from the app. That's according to a search conducted by Gizmodo and corroborated by App Figures, an analytics company. But apps aren't TikTok's only source of data. There are TikTok trackers spread across even more websites. The type of data sharing TikTok is doing is just as common on other parts of the Internet. The apps using the TikTok SDK include popular games like Mobile Legends, Big Bang, Trivia Crack, and Fruit Ninja, photo editors like VSCO and Canva, lesser-known dating apps, weather apps, Wi-Fi utilities, and a wide variety of other apps in nearly every category. The developers for the apps listed above did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Anyway, Gizmodo article goes on, but we got the gist of this. Okay, so there's two parts to this whole mess. The first is, what are we actually trying to do here? And the second is, is it even possible? Okay, first, to give the whole idea of banning TikTok some perspective, as well as a bit of an updated reality check about the present nature of consumer tracking on the Internet overall, the nonpartisan Brookings Institute titled their commentary from the middle of just last month, TikTok bans won't guarantee consumer safety. And so in this case, I've grabbed just the end of that long piece where they conclude and summarize a bit. Are TikTok's data practices different from other companies? And they say several experts have already argued that TikTok bans won't make Americans safer. One reason is that much of the information collected by TikTok is like that compiled by many companies that host consumer-facing products. The app undoubtedly has information on which videos users have watched, comments they've made about those items, and their geolocation while watching the videos, as well as both users and their friends' contact information. But that is true for nearly all digital platforms and e-commerce sites around the world. It is also the case that digital firms compile data on users, and many buy and sell consumer data via third-party vehicles. It's been estimated that leading U.S. data brokers have up to 1,500 pieces of information on the typical American and that both domestic and foreign entities can purchase detailed profiles on nearly anyone with an online presence. Even with aggregated data, 
it is possible to identify specific individuals through a relatively small number of attributes, with some research estimating that 99.98% of Americans could be de-anonymized from relatively small data sets. Still, what sets TikTok apart are the amount and type of trackers they use. According to a 2022 study utilizing Apple's Record App Activity feature, TikTok utilizes over twice the average number of potential trackers for social media platforms. Almost all of these trackers were maintained by third parties, making it harder to know what TikTok is doing with the information they collect. If concerns about TikTok are around the compromising of personal information with government authorities, either in China or elsewhere, there are many firms, both within the U.S. and abroad, that have been accused of the same. For example, a former Twitter employee was convicted of acting as a foreign agent for Saudi Arabia, providing confidential information from that platform about dissidents to foreign officials. Consumer geolocation data are routinely bought around the world by data brokers and repackaged for sale to advertisers, governments, and businesses. Regarding concerns that Chinese companies operating within the U.S. are beholden to Chinese laws, the same can be said of American companies that operate in China. Some observers have expressed worries about Tesla vehicles being made in China for some of the same reasons and what the company may have to do to maintain good relations with Chinese officials. Furthermore, if the criterion for bans based on national security is access to users' confidential information, there's a long list of American and foreign companies that face security challenges via their Chinese operations. As examples, many digital products sold domestically are made in China, and a wide variety of smart appliances, pharmaceuticals, personal protective equipment, computer chips, and other products are assembled there. Okay, so, you know, what's actually developed over time, globally, is a rich and deeply interdependent ecosystem. And there are myriad companies collecting and selling data on everyone who's using the Internet. Our illusion of true anonymity is exactly that, an illusion. As third-party cookies once did, most of this operates under the radar. While unseen, it is still utterly ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere. Okay, so that leaves the question. Assuming that the governments of the world decide that they're going to blacklist TikTok, is that even possible? Well, as we know, IP addresses are readily changed, but the domains used by DNS lookups are generally hard-coded into apps and trackers. That means that DNS lookups are TikTok's Achilles heel. I did a bit of research and I identified five domain name routes which often also have subdomains, so some wildcard matching would be necessary. There are also two Akamai CDN domains, but taken together, those would appear to be all of the domains currently in use by TikTok. So they are TikTok.com, TikTok.org, TikTokV.com, TikTokCDN.com, musical.ly, and then the two Akamai uh, CDN networks. Okay, so if federal agencies 
were to locally configure their network's local DNS to black hole those domains and their subdomains, you know, perhaps returning 0.0.0.0 or 127.0.0.1, or maybe pointing them to a local server, so, you know, to have them resolve to something. Once local device caches expire, you know, the DNS caches, uh, and a quick DNS dig that I did indicates that those domains are running with quite short TTL, you know, time-to-live expirations, all traffic of any sort bound for TikTok would lose its destination IP and would be blocked at the border. It would just get dropped at the client device. They would no longer be able to get the IP for any TikTok property. On the question of whether this would be a good thing to do, I have no opinion. Whereas the technology is interesting, the politics is not. You know, tensions are clearly on the rise with China, so I suppose that nationalism and protectionism are bound to rise as well. But I think more than anything, the technology lesson we take from this is that there is an incredible unseen and largely unappreciated underground of activity that very few Internet users appreciate. Out of curiosity, I went over to MSNBC's website at msnbc.com, and uBlock Origin lit up, counting that single website homepage, causing my browser to connect to 38 other domains. And foxnews.com connected my browser to 51 other domains. You know, 38 and 51. I'm sure that few are directly affiliated with either property. And how many CDNs do they need? You know, all of that other crap is superfluous. It's, you know, who knows what. And since most people have no idea what's going on, why not load up with revenue-generating trackers? I doubt that TikTok cares at all about the loss of connectivity to federal government networks. And federal employees who want to continue to use TikTok on their own devices while within those networks can simply switch to their cellular provider for continued unfettered Internet access. If the United States government's actual goal is to protect its citizens from the data collection of a Chinese state-owned and controlled entity, then blocking all TikTok traffic at U.S. borders is going to be necessary. But every time Russia or some other repressive regime does the same thing, we make fun of them. So, you know, make up your own mind. Yeah, I mean, do we want a great firewall of the U.S.? I think some exactly. people would like that. Uh, I... I Exactly. Yeah. It just it seems crazy. And I think that, you know, this just just seems uh, like way overblown. I thought it was interesting that Brookings said that in there in that 2022 analysis, TikTok was running more tracking things. Yeah, that's about interesting. More than twice. Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But on the other hand, it's it's twice more than a whole lot. So it's just a lot, lot. <laughs> more than Facebook, really? More than Instagram? Uh, I find that hard to believe. And I, I have agree. to say, these same people who are shouting about shutting down TikTok have done very little to protect our privacy with telecommunications companies right. who, who right. lobby very hard and give them a lot of money. Uh, and they just, they're mum on that. Right. And, and, and to your point, Leo, it was a really good one. When, when you mentioned Facebook and, and Instagram, the number of trackers 
is one metric, but the number of tracking events is a different metric. And because of the heavy use of yes. Facebook and Instagram, yeah. they're they're getting many more event tracking events. Well, we know that because they kill your phone battery. It's the first thing you do if you want to save your phone is take Facebook and Instagram off. Yep. I don't think TikTok kills my phone battery, but I don't know. Maybe it does. Uh, let's take a break. And okay. I'm going to uh, uh, get ready for the next phase of this. Get ready for the next phase of your life, Steve Gibson. Uh, uh. <laughs> and while you do that, I shall get ready to tell you about the next phase of our sponsorship our sponsor today is Drata, D-R-A-T-A. Drata is actually the, the answer to a question a lot of companies have these days. How do we maintain compliance? That is one, you know, you, there's, it's, security has many jobs, but one of the jobs you have is to prove that you are secure, that you are compliant to your stakeholders, to government regulators. Uh, it's, it's a big part of IT these days. And I am amazed at how many companies to this day are doing uh, evidence collection for compliance manually, by hand. <laughs> What? <laughs> As a leader in cloud compliance software, G2 Crowd says, a leader, Drata streamlines your SOC 2, your ISO 27001, your GDPR, your PCI DSS, your HIPAA, all those compliance frameworks that so many companies are, uh, you know, re re required to respond to. Drata gives you 24-hour automated continuous control monitoring. You focus on your business and on scaling and being secure and all the stuff you care about. Let Drata do the evidence gathering automatically. And by the way, Drata integrates with more than 75 of the applications of the clouds that you already use. Your entire tech stack, AWS, Azure, GitHub, Okta, Cloudflare, of course, all of them. Countless security professionals from companies who had been manually collected suddenly realized we could do it better, are using Drata. Companies like Lemonade and Notion and Bamboo HR have all shared how critical it's been to have Drata as a trusted partner in the compliance process. And one of the reasons you kind of, you might be inclined to say, okay, these are the guys. Drata is backed by SVCI. What, what you say, well how, well, how does that help? Well, it's a syndicate of CISO angel investors. So these are these are guys and gals on the front line, CISOs, who say, you know, Drata, this is the this is the one everybody's going to have to use. These CISOs from some of the most influential companies in the world have put their money where their mouth is. Drata allows companies to see all their controls, easily map them to compliance frameworks, so you can gain immediate insight into you know how you're doing it to overlap. Sometimes there's overlap. Get rid of that, save yourself some money, and start building a solid security posture achieve and maintain compliance expand your security assurance efforts drata automated temp dynamic policy templates support companies new to compliance really make it a lot easier for you so don't don't say oh i don't know are we going to be trust me so many companies ahead of you have done this automated reminders ensure a smooth employee onboarding uh they're the only player in the industry that has a completely private database architecture so your data can't be accessed by anyone outside your organization anyone at all 
And Drata is on your team. They're there to help you. So every Drata customer gets a team of compliance experts. You'll get a dedicated, I'm sorry, designated customer as success manager. They have a team of former auditors, auditors who have conducted more than 500 audits themselves. They're there for your support and your counsel. You can ask them questions. And because Drata uh, maintains a consistent meeting cadence, you're never kind of out in the cold. You're always on tracks. No surprises, no stoppers, you know, no barriers. They'll even do pre-audit calls with you to prepare you for when your audits begin. They're really a partner. That's what you want. With Drata's risk management solution, you can manage end-to-end risk assessment and treatment workflows. You can flag risks. You can score them. You can decide whether you want to accept them, mitigate them, transfer them, avoid them. Drata maps appropriate controls to those risks, simplifying risk management, automating the process. And Drata's Trust Center provides real-time transparency into security and compliance postures. So that improves your because people say, oh, they're doing it right. That improves your sales. Your security reviews gives you better relationships with customers and partners. This is just a win-win all around. Say goodbye to the tedious manual evidence collection. Say hello to automated compliance by visiting Drata, Drata.com slash twit, D-R-A-T-A, Drata.com slash twit. Drata, bringing automation to compliance at Drata speed, D-R-A-T-A dot com slash twit. You'll get 10% off when you request a demo. And make sure you use that address so they know you heard it uh, here on the Steve Gibson Show. Thank you, Drata, for your support uh, of security now. Back to you, Steve. So this piece piqued my interest because of the recent discussions we've been having about the U.K.'s decision to mandate, you know, the equivalent of some sort of backdoor in otherwise secure and private communications. A report from the Office of the Inspector General for the Department of Homeland Security, which was titled Secret Service and ICE did not always adhere to statute and policies governing use of cell site simulators. And they they said, then it was followed law enforcement sensitive redacted. That report found that the U.S. Secret Service and the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, you know, ICE, have not obtained court orders for multiple operations in 2020 and 2021 where they deployed cell site simulators, you know, stingrays, to intercept mobile communications. The report found that one Secret Service field office had deployed stingrays on multiple occasions on behalf of a local law enforcement agency without obtaining court warrants. The report also found that ICE did not believe court authorization was required, unquote, for some of its operations. Furthermore, the report also found that neither the USSS, what's that, the U.S., oh, the U.S. Secret Service, nor the ICE were documenting operations related to supervisory approval and data deletion procedures. So, yeah. Uh, We need to be careful with the technology that we make generally available. And those who have the technology need to know that their use of it will be monitored and they will be held accountable. This demonstrates, obviously, the potential for abuse once loopholes are placed into our supposedly secure and private communications. We'd like to believe 
that only those holding valid court orders, you know, search warrants, would have access to private communications. But experience suggests otherwise. Uh, you know, we're all, everybody's only human, right? Except ChatGPT, and we're not sure what it is. Okay. Strategic Objective 3.3. Uh, this is a biggie. Uh, and in fact, I'll have something more to say about this next week. I found a, a recent speech that was given, but dated March 2023. So this month, last week, the Biden administration published its 39 page national cybersecurity strategy. I haven't had time to go through the entire document, but if it appears worthwhile, I'll likely cover it in additional detail next week. And in fact, I did see some, some stuff about IoT that I want to talk about, too. But one section of the document in particular it was brought to my attention by Mark Fishburne, a listener of this podcast who knew I'd find it interesting, and our listeners will know why when I share it. That section is Strategic Objective 3.3, labeled Shift liability for insecure software and services. Get a load of what is now part of the United States official national cybersecurity strategy. It says markets impose inadequate costs on and often reward those entities that introduced vulnerable products or services into our digital ecosystem. Too many vendors ignore best practices for software development, ship products with insecure default configurations or known vulnerabilities, and integrate third-party software of unvetted or unknown provenance. Software makers are able to leverage their market position to fully disclaim liability by contract further reducing their incentive to follow secure-by-design principles or perform pre-release testing. Poor software security greatly increases systemic risk across the digital ecosystem and leaves American citizens bearing the ultimate cost. We must begin to shift liability onto those entities that fail to take responsible, sorry, fail to take reasonable precautions to secure their software while recognizing that even the most advanced software security programs cannot prevent all vulnerabilities. Companies that make software must have the freedom to innovate, but they must also be held liable when they fail to live up to the duty of care they owe consumers, businesses, or critical infrastructure providers. Responsibility must be placed on the stakeholders most capable of taking action to prevent bad outcomes, not on the end users that often bear the consequences of insecure software, nor on the open source developer of a component that is integrated into a commercial product. Doing so will drive the market to produce safer products and services while preserving innovation and the ability of startups and other small and medium-sized businesses to compete against market leaders. The administration will work with Congress and the private sector to develop legislation establishing liability for software products and services. Any such legislation should prevent manufacturers and software publishers 
with market power from fully disclaiming liability by contract and establish higher standards of care for software in specific high-risk scenarios. To begin to shape standards of care for secure software development, the administration will drive the development of an adaptable safe harbor framework to shield from liability companies that securely develop and maintain their software products and services. This safe harbor will draw from current best practices for secure software development, such as the NIST Secure Software Development Framework. It must also evolve over time, incorporating new tools for secure software development, software transparency, and vulnerability discovery. And finally, to further incentivize the adoption of secure software development practices, the administration will encourage coordinated vulnerability disclosure across all technology types and sectors, promote the further development of software bills of material, and develop a process for identifying and mitigating the risk presented by unsupported software that is widely used or supports critical infrastructure. In partnership with the private sector and in the open source software community, the federal government will also continue to invest in the development of secure software, including memory-safe languages and software development techniques, frameworks, and testing tools. <laughs> wow. Okay, now, obviously, no strategy is law, right? A strategy is only that. And major software publishers have strong lobbying arms in Washington where legislative votes are available to the highest bidder. So nothing here in this 3.3 section is actionable, and there will be a great deal of pushback against any sort of weakening of today's current blanket contractual protections, which we've often noted, you know, is like, well, yeah, you can use the software, but whatever it does, it does, and we don't really know, and if you don't like it, you're, you know, all you can ever do is ask for your money back. That's your maximum recourse. Um, what caught me off guard here was the precision of understanding about the nature of this problem. You know, that one sentence, Software makers are able to leverage their market position to fully disclaim liability by contract. In other words, if you don't like it, don't use it. On the other hand, their position doesn't make not using it a practical alternative, right? You know, you, you have to use Microsoft stuff if you're in, in, in the enterprise. So anyway, they said further reducing their incentive to follow secure by design principles or perform pre-release testing. So, you know, I would say the writing is not yet even on the wall, but it's obviously in some people's heads. And it just got written down in the official national cybersecurity strategy for the first time ever. So it's obvious that others have noticed the same irresponsible attitudes toward critical software security that We've been discussing here on this podcast. I mean, you know, the fiasco of Microsoft's printer problems, which they just ignored for six months, which hurt huge numbers of their customers. So was they'd be li so they'd be liable for this. Yes, which I think is fantastic. I mean, they're yes. not going to they're not going to think it's very fantastic. I'm sure. Oh no, baby. Does it mean liable criminally or liable civilly? Like uh, I'm sure it's civil liability. Yeah. 
and maybe yeah. just opens up the idea that if you were a victim of a, a printer hack, that you could recover losses from Microsoft. Of course, their shrink wrap licenses and all those EULAs and all that say, oh, we're not liable, and oh, you have to well, go to arbitration. that's just it. You yeah. know, that is their, their disclaiming. They're, they're disclaiming liability by contract, which right. this specifically targets and right. says, this is not okay. Good. We Ooh. talked about it on Twitter a little bit, and I wanted, wanted to get your take on it, because that seems a big sea change, and you're right. Uh, will Congress let that go through? Probably not, but yeah, it's, it's, it's good to just shake some trees a little bit, I guess. Well, and and ask if the public would not be yes. you know, for this. So, you know, it's like a anybody who hears this is like, well, yeah, well, of course. why wouldn't they be responsible? Right. Of course. And as I've been saying, it's insane what we have now where there's zero, zero accountability. And we've all know? we've but, all seen those, you know, disclaimers on boxes of software and so forth that say, you know, not not uh, we not representing that this is fit for any purpose whatsoever. And uh, yeah, mer merchantability <laughs> or fitness of use. Yeah, we don't we don't know. We don't guarantee nothing. The, you know, you may drive the car off the lot and the wheels all fall off. Not and my if fault. so, well. You know, we thought we screwed them on tight, but I guess Henry, well, you know. But actually, that's that. the difference because car manufacturers are liable. That's my point. Software manufacturers are not. This is an anomaly in the yeah. you know, for for something that has become as important as software has. I agree. You know, and it's only because of history, right? Back when it was just like, well, you could store your wife's recipes on your Apple II, you know, and if 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 well if we, if we lost them, it's, we're sorry. Yeah, you should have held on to the paper copy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it just and it went from there, right? It never changed. Good, I love yeah, it. This I, is, ho this I is, hope they this is get this happening. This is good. This is big news. And, and again, just the fact that it's been been written down, and now people are going to see it and go, huh? Yeah, why is that that way? You know, it's like okay, good. So back in December. GitHub announced the public beta of their free secret scanning alert. It's, it's, the, the name of this is weird. Secret scanning alerts. I had to like, what? Anyway, public beta in December, their free secret scanning alerts across public repositories. Now, by secret scanning, they mean that GitHub will proactively scan all code submitted for the inadvertent inclusion of any secrets like whoops we left the admin password in the code by mistake it's a very cool idea and since its initial release in beta more than 70,000 public repositories have turned on secret scanning alerts and have uncovered thousands of leaking secrets stuff that the authors did not intend to leave in their code um, so, as of one week ago, last Tuesday, a week ago today, last Tuesday, GitHub's secret scanning alert experience is generally available and free for all public repositories. GitHub users can enable secret scanning alerts across all of the repositories they own to notify them of any leaked secrets across their entire repository history, including code, issues, descriptions, and comments. GitHub Secret Scanning works with more than 100 service providers in the GitHub Partner Program. In addition to alerting users, they will notify their partners when one of their secrets is leaked. With Secret Scanning Alerts enabled, 
Regular users will now also receive alerts for secrets where it's not possible to notify a partner, for example, if self-hosted keys are exposed, along with a full audit log of actions taken on the alert. So one example of this in practice is a DevOps consultant and trainer uh, whose handle is at R-A-J-B-O-S, I guess his name is Rob. Anyway, he enabled secret scanning on approximately 14,000 repositories and discovered over 1,000 secrets. Rob remarked, quote, My research proves the point of why everyone should have secret scanning enabled. I've researched 14,000 public GitHub action repositories and found over 1,000 <laughs> secrets in them. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I train a lot of folks on using GitHub Advanced Security, I found secrets oh. in my own repositories through it's this. Easy. It's easy to make that mistake. It really is. I, yeah. I have to be very careful because I have, and I bet you a lot of these are this, I have, uh, well, some of it's going to be code with like your Amazon secret key, API key right. in it, right? Right. But I well, also, I back up my dot .files, my settings files, uh, my PGP stuff's in there. Uh, I back up my Emacs setup, and it's very easy to, you know, you often people hard code secrets into those files, and and then you're syncing them to GitHub. It's easy to forget and miss it. Yep, and and for example, you might have put that in just for like during testing, right? In yeah, the, just like, like 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 so you didn't have to keep entering the password every time. You you just put a little shortcut in, and then when when you go to production, you forget. Forget, and it's like whoops. There's a way to do it. You know, they're a really easy. Well, not that easy, but there is a little thing you could do to have PGP encrypted keys in all those secrets, and then they're kind of safe. They're still in the code, but they're safe. Uh, and I've always thought, oh, I should probably do that. And I have never done it. <laughs> so, you know, I'm counting on my own uh, brilliance to remember not to not to upload those files. Oh, boy. Good luck. So also last Tuesday, CISA revealed the somewhat bracing results of a secret red team exercise that they carried out against the network of, quote, a large uh, named U.S. critical infrastructure organization with a mature cyber posture, unquote. During that exercise, they, quote, obtained persistent access to the organization's network, moved laterally across multiple geographically separate sites, and gained access to systems adjacent to the organization's sensitive business systems, unquote. CISA says that on at least 13 separate occasions, its red team triggered measurable events. It wasn't clear whether this was deliberate or unavoidable, you know, but that should have gotten it caught and didn't. In every case, the organization failed to detect these actionable events. As I noted, CISA officials declined to name the organization, but they did say that although they did manage to get in, they found the organization had good cybersecurity policies in other parts of its network, such as up-to-date and hardened perimeter infrastructure and good password policies. Okay? So how did CISA's red team gain its initial entry? Phishing. Today's most difficult-to-corral cyber weakness. People on the inside 
or on the inside. And it's just too easy for someone to inadvertently allow a bad guy in. And that's what happened in this instance. And, and once they got in, they stayed in, moved laterally, set up shop, moved around, explored the network, all un- unseen. Okay, so I titled this little short bit of news, What's Left? After reading that Russia had formally legally banned the use of all foreign messaging applications inside Russian financial institutions and state-owned companies. Again, this is one of those, what, they're only now? Like, why would you Why would you not do it alone? I was like, are you still using Windows in Russia? What? Anyway, the law, which entered into its effect this month, outlaws the use of apps such as Discord, Microsoft Teams, Skype for Business, Snapchat, Telegram, Threema, Viper, WhatsApp, and WeChat. Now, the page announcing this was in Russian, and it lists those. Uh, And if you're interested, I have the link here uh, in the show notes, uh, like we have any Russian speakers. Uh, But notably missing is Apple's iMessage and Android's messages, hmm. which are both end-to-end encrypted. Hmm. You know, you can see the the, the the name of the things that I named. There they are, you know, nine specifically enumerated uh, messaging apps. Uh, so this legislation, which specifically enumerated those nine third-party messenger apps, doesn't mention the two mobile platforms' native messengers. So... You know, perhaps that's the answer to my rhetorical question, what's left? Or perhaps those are just implied. You know, the news was that all foreign messaging applications were banned. So perhaps Russia has some state-owned or trusted messaging apps that no one, you know, that no one is going to want to use or trust. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, just sort of interesting. There's like, okay, can't use these, but uh, we don't know about iMessage or or messages on the Android platform. Um, As we've noted before, CISA is maintaining a list of what they call, it's the the KEV list, the known exploited vulnerabilities. Uh, And KEV has become a common abbreviation within the security industry for that growing list. In other words, these are vulnerabilities which CISA has had reports of actually being used in the field. So that's like the patch first list, right? And once upon a time, it wasn't very big, but it's been growing. During the last year, the size of this catalog of known exploited vulnerabilities very nearly tripled in size. It jumped from 331 entries at the start of 2022, but finished out last year with 868 individual vulnerabilities known to have been seen being actively exploited. Okay, now here's the interesting part. Although this near tripling of the list in one year would suggest that new bugs are being exploited, a look at the issuance dates of the catalog's CVEs for those shows that the vast majority of the new CISA KEV entries are for older vulnerabilities that companies failed to patch for years, all which came under attack last year. The oldest of those was the exploitation of a bug 
that was originally had a patch available for it 21 years ago, back in 2002, which was it came back to life and was being used for vulnerability exploitation. So, wow. As I said, you know, we've often talked about how amazingly difficult it is to get our the old stuff patched. And, you know, that's another advantage of this Directive 3.3, right? If the if software were more secure out of the gate, rather than relying, I mean, like relying by policy, which is what Microsoft has become, right? They are relying by policy on updates. There's there's not even a, it's it's not a shock, it, it, you know. It's hundreds of security vulnerabilities per month are being fixed. So you know, and and we hear stories, right, of how what is it, Windows seven or eight shipped with ten over ten thousand known problems, and yeah, some of them are. That you know the the color of this gray shading changes uh, if you shake the computer sideways uh, during a full moon. They're just not big problems, but obviously a lot of them are big problems. And so what's happened is it's just become oh yeah, Joe, what 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 day is it? Okay, ship it. We'll we're gonna we have weekly updates. We'll fix it later. Well, not all systems have weekly updates or monthly updates. I should have said. So it would be nice if there was a little more pressure to get it right the first time, since we seem to, you know, as a, as an industry, as a, as a world, we're just not keeping things patched, even when, when fixes are available. <laughs> Speaking of patches, remember when everyone used Intel's sample universal plug and play implementation code as their actual production code, apparently without ever actually looking at the code, and even in the face of that comment header block at the top of the code, which loudly stated that this was sample code only and should never be used for production. And that as a result of that, the entire industry suffered as a whole from a widespread vulnerability in that sample code, which everybody had in their routers. Okay, well, history is its not really repeating but it's certainly reminiscent. This time, it's a pair of widespread vulnerabilities which have befallen multiple vendors, platform, um, trusted platform module, you know, the TPM code. It's not, as I said, not quite the same as the UPnP debacle since these vendors were at least using the TPM reference implementation library, which should have been okay. But this is another example, at least, of the danger of monocultures and why we're more healthy if, as another example, we keep browsers other than Chromium alive. In this case, researchers at Quark's lab discovered a pair of buffer overflow vulnerabilities in libraries implementing the TPM 2.0 security specification. The vulnerabilities would allow an attacker who could gain access to the TPM's command line interface to leverage the vulnerabilities to corrupt the TPM's memory and access sensitive information handled by the TPM, such as encryption keys, which, of course, is exactly what all of the TPM's fancy hardware technology is supposed to prevent. Patches for this were released at the end of last month, end of February, and since many vendors all directly implemented 
the same reference library, the TPM implementations from IBM, the Trusted Computing Group themselves, Red Hat, SUSE Linux, and many others are all affected. So we can look for some uh, updates to that coming soon. Um, okay, two last pieces. Uh, WordPress. Just a quick note to all of our listeners who manage WordPress sites. More than 3 million WordPress sites, which are currently running uh, a plugin called All-in-One SEO, will need to be updated to resolve a set of vulnerabilities that could be used to hijack sites. As is often the case, the troubles were found and reported by the researchers at WordFence. And again, 3 million plus WordPress sites currently vulnerable. As I've noted before, when we were talking about the inherent danger of third-party developed WordPress add-ins, which, you know, which appear to be having constant security problems. And again, not because anybody's malicious, typically, just because, you know, there are unprofessional developers who, who, who you know, create a widget and think, hey, I'm going to make this available to other people. Anyway, adding protection from WordFence, if it fits your budget, would seem like a large and worthwhile ounce of prevention. So just a reminder that those guys are there and they really are on the ball. And finally, the Russian government has fined the Wikimedia Foundation, you know, the organization behind the Wikipedia portal, two million, okay, well, rubles. That's about $27,000 for failing to delete (laughs) misinformation, Leo, about the Russian military and its invasion, uh, oops, its special operation in Ukraine. According to Reuters, this is the third time Wikipedia has been fined by Russia since the country's invasion of Ukraine. Wikipedia said the recent fine was related to articles on its Russian language portal related to Russian invasions of Ukraine, the battle for Kiev, war crimes during the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the shelling of Maripol Hospital, the bombing of the Maripol Theater, and the massacre in Bucha. I noted last November uh, when the second of, the, oh, I'm sorry, I noted, not, not here on the podcast, but I noted that last November when the second of the three fines was levied, the same fine of two million rubles was set. But back then, those two million rubles were worth $33,000. Today, 27000 So those rubles appear to be slipping against the dollar a little bit. The Wikimedia Foundation has stated that they refuse to back down and remove what it said was clearly fact-based, multiply-sourced, verified truth. And they've been appealing these fines in Russian court. So far, they've only had one successful ruling, but, you know, we can hope. I mean, Leo? I wouldn't expect much from the courts, to be honest no. with you. But I'm surprised they even, like, bother. bother. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, who runs and, those courts? And, Let's think about that, right? Yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, I would imagine if they, you know, they should not pull the content down. If Russia wants to block all of Wikipedia, fine. Let them. Then it's just another loss for Russia's uh, citizens right. who are, you know, part of <sighs> part of this mess. Sad. It's very okay. sad. Our last break, and then, oh, baby, 
Uh, we're going to discuss a foul incident. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> uh, I was trying to decide where to go to dinner tonight. I'm thinking now Popeye's, but we'll find out. We'll find out. Uh, Stay tuned. Right. Our show today brought to you by Collide. Collide. K-O-L-I-D-E. It's a device trust solution that does really the most fundamental, most important thing make sure unsecured devices cannot access your apps. Now, think about it. If if LastPass had this, they might be in a different uh, situation these days, right? The, the key, of course, to security is to make sure that people who are running insecure devices and apps aren't accessing your devices and apps. Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, and I know many of you are, Collide can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. Collide patches one of the major holes in a zero-trust architecture device compliance. Think about it. Your identity provider only lets known devices log into apps, right? So far, so good. But just because a device is known doesn't mean it's in a secure state. In fact, I'm going to bet plenty of the devices in your fleet probably shouldn't be trusted, and you're trusting them right now. Uh, maybe they're running on out-of-date OS versions, or maybe they've got unencrypted credentials lying around. There's a whole lot of things. Their browsers aren't up to date. If a device isn't, or they're running an old version of Plex, if a device isn't compliant or isn't running the Collide agent, it can't access. It won't be allowed to access the organization's SaaS apps or other resources. The device user can't log into your company's cloud apps, not until they've fixed the problem on their end. It's that simple. For example, the device will be blocked if an employee doesn't have an up-to-date browser. But here's the thing. It's not just slam the door in their face. It's going to use end-user remediation to get the user to fix the problem and drive your fleet to 100% compliance without overwhelming your IT team. That's what Collide does. Without Collide, your IT teams have no way to solve these compliance issues or stop insecure devices from logging in. But with Collide, you set and enforce compliance across your entire fleet. This is another great benefit of Collide. It's fully cross-platform, Macs, Windows, even Linux. Collide's unique in that it makes device compliance part of the authentication process. So the user logs in with Okta. Collide alerts them to compliance issues and says, Mm -mm -mm. prevents unsecured access uh, devices from logging in. And this is security you can feel good about because Collide puts transparency and respect for your users at the center of their product. Uh, to sum it up, Collide's method means fewer support tickets for you, less frustration for you and your end users, but most importantly, it means 100% fleet compliance. Visit collide.com slash security now. Learn more, book a demo, K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash security now. This is a great idea and a much needed piece in that overall security puzzle. Collide, K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash security now. And now, I can't wait to hear all about this foul story. We are going to encounter a mystery and solve it. Ah. When I read from a Chick-fil-A ah. data breach report, 
okay. submitted to the U.S. State of Maine's Attorney General, which disclosed that 71,473 Chick-fil-A account-holding customers had had their accounts breached through a credential stuffing attack. I was skeptical, and I'm at least still a bit confused. That number just seems far too huge to be the result of what amounts to opportunistic, previous breach-driven guessing of account usernames and passwords. And really, okay, think about it. Why would some random hacker be going out of their way to compromise the accounts, and more than just a few, of Chick-fil-A customers? Why not Chase, Bank of America, or TD Ameritrade? I mean, Chick-fil-A? Really? You know, you know, those are the customer accounts that you choose to penetrate. Uh, you must really have a thing for chicken. So <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. It it doesn't make any sense to me. That number, first of all, seems too big. 71,473 individual Chick-fil-A customer accounts, each which would have taken effort to compromise. And what do you get for all that effort? I don't know. Apparently some Chick-fil-A redeemable loyalty reward points. Okay, we've been talking about this form of attack recently. But just to reiterate, since this is where details matter, Credential stuffing attacks are the reuse of username, email, and passwords leaked from previous online site breaches, which are then being used to blindly guess login credentials at other unaffiliated websites. The point is, as I've said before, all rational logic suggests that this should be an extremely low-yield attack, meaning that in order to correctly guess the logins for 71,473 individual Chick-fil-A customers, it would be necessary to wrongly guess a gazillion other times. When I initially saw that large number, my first thought was that it couldn't actually be a true credential stuffing attack. And for the record, I've never been a fan of the term credential stuffing. The industry, I think, could have come up with a better name, like credential reuse attack. But credential stuffing it is, and as long as we all know that it's a credential reuse attack, that's fine. So, for that many accounts to be successfully attacked, I'm suspicious of whether Chick-fil-A might have earlier lost control of their own customer account data, and that the leaked information itself was now being used to log in and attack their customers. This would, you know... This would convert the attack from surprisingly successful low yield against a bizarre target to unsurprisingly high yield against the only available target. You know, if it was Chick-fil-A's data that had been breached, you know, leaked. You know, if you've somehow acquired Chick-fil-A's customer logon data, then that's going to be your only target. On the other hand, if we assume that this was actually a true credential stuffing attack and putting aside for the moment the question out of a universe of equally suitable targets, why would an attacker choose Chick-fil-A, the Chick-fil-A's disclosure to various states' attorneys general 
Did really? I wouldn't even choose him for a chicken sandwich, let alone a credential stuffing attack. No, no. Uh, And you'll get a kick at the at at, at what I put down at the very end of the show notes. But we'll get there here in a minute. Um, uh, The Chick Fil A's disclosure to various states' attorneys general did state that the attack took place over a two-month span. So this is Chick Fil A's disclosure, right? So Chick-fil-A is saying the attack took place over a two-month span from last December 18th through um, February of 12th last month. Okay, so that's 56 days during which 71,473 Chick-fil-A customer accounts were breached at an average rate of 1,276 successful account breaches per day. So the logistics of such a credential stuffing attack would be that an attacker has a massive database of prospective login credentials, which they, for some reason, choose to aim at Chick-fil-A's website. <laughs> I mean, first of all, who has an account with Chick-fil-A? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You'd have to be I, quite I, a fan. I agree. Uh, and in Blind account credential guessing, they then pour this massive database through the website's clearly unrestricted authentication front end at presumably some massive rate. Perhaps the attack was distributed with the massive database spread among many attacking clients in order to increase the overall rate of credential guessing because, of course, modern websites are able to simultaneously entertain many incoming connections. But in a situation where there's no apparent oversight over failed authentication, which must have been happening with like millions of instances, monitoring or throttling of failed authentication of any kind is missing. So, you know, there's no real need to distribute the attack. Nothing prevents a single attacking machine or only a handful from each establishing their own hundreds or thousands of simultaneous login sessions with a single Chick-fil-A server. That works, too. If we accept Chick-fil-A's claim that this was truly blind credential guessing from a database of previous completely unaffiliated websites, then the per-guess yield had to be quite low. A very, a, it, you know, again, how many people are there in this leaked database that also happen to be Chick-fil-A customers? Oh, I'm looking at Chick-fil-A's website now because I'm really curious, why would you have a login? And they have something called Chick-fil-A One, which is yes. a point, you know, a customer loyalty thing. You earn points. And then you get some, you know, a free waffle fry or something. Yeah, it's you know every every X number of of co- co- coffees I right. used to buy at Starbucks, I would get a. I would yeah, get a so that's what it is. Stars. Oh, but again, yes. why would you want to hack it? What are you going to get? Somebody's Chick Fil A exactly. points. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe so, their credit card. I mean. It had to be, well, and that wasn't available. It uh, there, there it was uh, blinded, so it it, it could okay. not be seen. Okay. So. It, so the yield per guess had to be quite low. A very low per guess yield meant that the total number of guesses had to be massive. So this in turn means that the Chick-fil-A website servers raised no alarm of any kind while starting last December the 18th, 
their incoming connection rate had to have skyrocketed as millions of attempts to log in there were now failing. The authentication failure rate had to be astronomical, yet nothing at their end took any notice. So that's this is a crime of opportunity because most sites... You wouldn't even be able to do that. They'd be rate limited or, the, you know, they'd, an alarm would be raised. Maybe Chick-fil-A just didn't have any protection. Clearly they didn't. Right. Or it wouldn't they have, it paying wouldn't attention. have 50, 56 days yeah. without them yeah. noticing. Yeah. Once Chick-fil-A somehow became aware of the attack, presumably when a sufficient number of their own customers complained <laughs> of some sort of account tampering, like, where did my chicken bone points go or whatever the hell it is? You know, they were they were able to identify exactly, you know, because that's what you want is they want the chicken bone. Points. I want those chicken bone able, points. Mm-mm-mm. That's right. They were able to identify exactly which of their customers had their accounts breached in this manner. First, remember, we have an exact count, right? 71,463. We're never going to forget that. In, in a way, this is Chick-fil-A's way of saying, we just never thought anybody would want to get in. That badly. We didn't, we yeah. didn't, we didn't secure it because we thought, well, who, who would care if you were... Oh, my gosh. I know. Okay. Okay. So yeah. the reports now... That they've repaired any damage done to those customers, they've you know restored their previous chicken bone points, <laughs> made them whole again, and instructed them to change their Chick Fil A passwords, and and also anywhere else that they were reusing the same password. Okay, that's now we know what happened. We have two takeaways from this foul incident. First, if we accept on its face that this was an unaffiliated if somewhat bizarre attack, then it could only have succeeded as it has due to the continuing presence of a widespread and stubborn reuse of user passwords across sites. Oh, but we right? know that happens. We really uh, and do. And we do, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And of course that and remember, that's not yesterday, that's today, right now. Yeah. This was this was just happening. This means that more than ever it is rapidly becoming truly imperative for the uniqueness of passwords to be enforced across all of a user's online accounts. We've learned from our own podcast audience's reports in the wake of the last past vault debacle that updating passwords can be a slow, tedious, and laborious process. But now, more than ever before, if your password manager offers a global password reuse audit, as many do, maybe also a password strength audit, it's important that you allocate some time to begin replacing any duplicated passwords and also in strengthening any existing passwords that that do not contain sufficient state-of-the-art entropy. I'm sure that this message is largely redundant and is unnecessary for this podcast audience, but the success of this Chick-fil-A attack informs us that everyone listening needs to share their understanding of this and why this is important with everyone they know. Yes, adjacent, podcast adjacent listeners. Yes. 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 Because if we're to believe Chick-fil-A, it's clear that the reuse of passwords remains widespread across the Internet, and we're starting to see an evolving epidemic of this new form 
of surprisingly successful attack. This brings us to the second and more interesting technology question. What can websites do in the face of what appears to be an escalating and approaching epidemic of opportunistic, low-yield, credential reuse attacks? When a logger, when a logger, when a user logs into a website, their browser requests the login page, which presents a form to be filled out. Okay, now, I got to this point in preparing today's show notes when I thought that I ought to go over to Chick-fil-A's website to see whether they presented the login as a single form or multiple staged forms. And what did I find? I have a picture of what I found in the show notes. You can go to Chick-fil-A and click login, and you'll see it too. There are a pair of standard login credentials prompting for email address and password. But there's also a sign-in with Google Uh and a sign-in with Apple. Mm -hmm. And in the spot where there was once a sign-in with Facebook, Uh the page now reads, looking for Facebook login? Isn't that interesting? Mm. Clicking that link takes existing Chick-fil-A customers to a page that says it screams in big red boldface, Facebook login is no longer available. Huh. It says, to continue using your account, you will need to set up an email and password login method. In other words, old school. Please enter the email address associated with your Facebook account to get started to find your Chick-fil-A One account. And then they prompt for your Facebook email. But they're not letting you log in with your Facebook account any longer. Though we cannot know for sure when Chick-fil-A's probably most popular login with Facebook OAuth2 option was removed, anyone doing some forensic post-incident digging would be skeptical of the coincidence given the recent attack. Unfortunately, since their login page is algorithmically generated and thus cannot be brought up with a specific, with a static URL, the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine cannot be queried to see when login with Facebook was removed as an option. But given that login with Google and login with Apple are both still present and that Chick-fil-A's replacement for login with Facebook is migrating users from Facebook login to their native login, I would would bet a month's pay that now we know what actually happened. It was not a generic credential stuffing attack. It was specifically a Facebook credential reuse attack. And now we understand why Chick-fil-A was the target. It was because they offered the popular login with Facebook option. Somebody somewhere has a boatload of in-the-clear Facebook login username and password credentials. And over the course of several months, they explored the intersection 
of that stolen Facebook credential set with the Chick-fil-A customer account database. Which is pretty there close were, to one-to-one, I'm betting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I'm just thinking. But you'd, were, you'd have to log into Face, so you'd have to have a Facebook cookie on your browser, right? No, 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 no. You no, because you, you'd log you, in with uh, Facebook, and that'd do it. Exactly. Yeah. You, you click yeah. log in with Facebook, then you provide the, your Facebook credentials, and you're logged into Chick Fil A. There were 71,473 Chick-fil-A customers wow. whose Facebook credentials are part of the stolen Facebook data set. And as a consequence, their Chick-fil-A accounts were breached. Now, when you think about it, if you had a trove of valid Facebook login credentials, what's the most valuable thing you could do with them? Who wants to log in to those random users' Facebook accounts? There's no money in that. No. What you want to do is leverage the increasingly pervasive use of OAuth2 account login to compromise the myriad other accounts belonging to those hapless Facebook users who have chosen to identify themselves to other website properties only through their Facebook credentials. Mm, so you're testing that, it. You're not trying to get chicken points. No, no, you no, no. Uh, in fact, those the, the 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 stolen accounts were for sale on the dark web. People wanted chicken bone points. Oh, okay, all right, okay. So they were actually compromising those accounts. So that was intentional. Just that, that were worth right. something. Aim a little higher, kids. I just. But think about it. <laughs> you, you. So again, if you have face, if you have valid Facebook login credentials, you don't care about logging into people's Facebook accounts. No, who cares you about that? You want to log into the other accounts right. those people have. Elsewhere on the internet, where they've used Facebook to identify themselves. Now, probably a lot of these people don't use two-factor either, right? So all Correct. you need is the credentials. You don't. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. now, as the attacker, you have a valuable and potentially widespread attack. If this is true, as seems extremely likely given all the evidence, we have a perfect example of why the use of OAuth2 for logging in with a common credential poses a significant threat. What are we loudly telling everyone who will listen about their passwords? We're saying, do not use the same username and password to log into multiple websites, right? Everybody knows that. But the use of OAuth2 which is now being actively promoted due to its extreme ease of use, is a direct contravention of that advice. It is the explicit reuse of a single set of credentials, Facebook credentials, across a great many website properties. And while there may not be much value to an attacker to use a stolen Facebook credential to log into that Facebook user's account, there might well be significant value in their ability to log in everywhere else that Facebook user used their Facebook credentials to create non-Facebook accounts. So this begs the question, how are in-the-clear Facebook account credentials harvested? 
And we quickly find an example. Bloomberg News Technology and Cybersecurity article from October 7th, 2022. Okay, just last October. Just two months before we're told the attack on Chick-fil-A began, has the headline, Facebook is warning one million users about stolen usernames and passwords. The article says the company found more than 400 problematic Android and iOS apps, games and photo editors, tricked users into providing credentials. Okay, now just grabbing one paragraph from Bloomberg's coverage, they wrote, a typical scam would unfold, for example, after a user downloaded one of the malicious apps. The app would require a Facebook login to work beyond basic functionality, thus tricking the user into providing their username and password. Users could then, for example, upload an edited photo directly to their Facebook account. But in the process, they unknowingly compromised their account by giving the author of the app access. So, what the Chick-fil-A attack probably reveals is the new use to which stolen Facebook credentials are now being put. Again, obtaining access to a Facebook user's account is far less profitable than being able to log into any and all of that user's non-Facebook accounts where they may have something of value. Most users, as we know, have not the faintest clue how all of this technology we've given them to use works. No idea whatsoever. And Leo, as the tech guy, you know that better than anyone. Yeah. So when they're asked by a spiffy neat app they've just downloaded to provide their Facebook login credentials so that the app can link to and synchronize with their Facebook account, they don't know any better. Right. Why would they? Right. And most users would not understand that in the process, thanks to the fact that they've also been using login with Facebook everywhere they possibly can, because it's so much easier to do that, that they're also giving away the access to their accounts at all of those other websites as well. We've often noted that the use of OAuth 2 is an inherent privacy compromise, since that third party... Facebook, Google, Apple, or whomever, knows everywhere you're using them to log in and where you are at the time. But this Chick-fil-A attack, with its subsequent removal of its most popular login with Facebook option, reveals a much darker side of the widespread use of this form of single sign-on solution. All of the common wisdom urges users to avoid credential reuse but credential reuse is exactly what single sign-on promotes and thus this foul incident as highlighted has highlighted a worrisome truth behind a growing trend and i leave you with the uh end of the show notes picture of the week which i found on the chick-fil-a site which is uh also a little cute it's <laughs> <laughs> it's got it's got four cows standing up each holding a portion uh, a sign the first one says eat 
The second one says more, M-O-R, and the third one says chicken. So, yes. Yeah, this is the, the famous. Cow, the, cows are, the cows are encouraging you to eat, eat more chicken. And less less burgers and more. And less beef. More, yes, yes exactly. more chicken fingers, which is amazing because chickens don't even have fingers. Well, well, sir, you have you have done it again. You have you have gotten to the bottom of one of the nation's most uh, critical <laughs> security <What>? issues. <laughs> the incredible Chick-fil-A breach. Be you, sure to dump your chicken bone points out before the you, next hack. You you now you now explained it to all in a way no one else. You this is a scoop, sir. This is a scoop. You've figured it out. I you know just turn on two factor everywhere. Facebook has it. I don't know why you wouldn't use it. And then you no one would steal your chicken bone points. Okay. Yep. Okay. Or any other bone points anywhere else. Keep your bone points to yourself, Mister. Don't keep, however. Don't keep your podcast points to yourself. Spend them right here. Join us every uh, Tuesday as we do security now. I know you want every copy of every show. Steve has them. In fact, he has unique uh, versions of those at our website, grc.com. He's got 16 kilobit versions. I think you've got 16 kilobit of every single one, right? 16 kilobit audio. I went back and squashed down the ones before. Oh, they uh, sound terrible, but they're small. (laughs) They're small. He also has transcripts. And Elaine has written transcripts for all the shows. Yep. So that's a really nice thing. You can use it for searching, but you can also use it for uh, list, reading as you listen or just reading them standalone. Although why you wouldn't want to hear Steve's dulcet tones on your uh, podcasting devices beyond me. Uh, GRC.com is a place to get those. He also has the full 64 kilobit audio uh, version of it as well. While you're there, check out Spinrite. The world's finest mass storage maintenance and recovery utility now at version six, but six point one is imminent. And We're if you zeroing in on it, homing right in there, homing right in. All you have to do is uh, buy six point you'll get six point one the minute it's available. GRC.com, lots of other free stuff there. Browse around to your heart's content. You can even leave Steve feedback, questions, or comments at GRC.com/feedback. You can also tweet him. His DMs are open. So he takes uh, direct messages as well at uh, his Twitter account, which is SGGRC, SGGRC. Uh, we have copies of the show at our website, twit.tv slash SN. We've got 64 kilobit audio and our unique version is video. You can watch Steve as he works uh, at uh, twit.tv. There's also a YouTube channel, which is, of course, also video dedicated to security now. And you can subscribe in your favorite podcast player. Uh, get it that way the minute it's available. You can also uh, you can also watch us do it live. You get the freshest version if you tune in right after Mac Break Weekly of a Tuesday, usually around one thirty Pacific, four thirty Eastern, twenty one thirty UTC at live.twit.tv. Wait a minute, do we set the clocks back this weekend? The, yeah, I think we do. It is, it is one of these weekends. So, in March, so. it will be instead of twenty one thirty UTC, it'll be twenty thirty UTC. Starting next week, I believe we we we're we're going uh, going back to summertime. So anyway, you figure it out. Don't miss it. If you're watching live, you could chat live. We have an IRC channel dedicated to the the Twit Network at irc.twit.tv. That's run by our community, our great community. We also have the Club Twit Discord. You can join that. If you're a member of Club Twit, and I encourage you to join Club Twit, seven bucks a month gets you ad-free versions of this show and every other show, special shows we don't put out anywhere else. You get access to the Discord, 
lots of extra content, and it's just seven bucks a month. Twit.tv slash club twit to find out more. And we do appreciate uh, all of the club twit members who make this show and all the shows we do possible. It's really a, a huge boon to us, so thank you. Steve, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time under Daylight Saving Time. Uh, Indeed we will. And uh, who knows what the week will bring. (laughs) We'll find out and we'll let everybody know. Bye. If you love all things Android, well, I've got a show for you to check out. It's called All About Android, and I'll give you three guesses what we talk about. We talk about Android, the latest news, hardware, apps. We answer feedback. It's me, Jason Howell, Ron Richards, Wintwit Dow, and a whole cast of awesome characters talking about the operating system that we love. You can find All About Android at twit.tv slash AAA. Security.